0: From the newsroom of The Washington Post. Hey, it's Ross Helderman from The Post calling. How are you?
1: Hey there, it's Sangman from The Post. Uh, Hey, it's
2: Dave Ferrand from The Post. Have you
0: got a second? This is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Wednesday, September 2nd. Today, learning remotely without good internet, new challenges for special education, and the toxic side of positivity. The digital divide I feel like consists of having access to two things, having a device and as well as internet, but not just internet, high speed internet. My name is Kimberly Vasquez. I'm a rising senior at Baltimore City College High School. Like myself, I get kicked out of Zoom calls all the time, you know, and it's it's very unfortunate if you don't have internet, you you can't participate on your classes.
3: So even in situations where families have, technically have a high-speed internet connection, if it's not working very well, perhaps because of the part of the city they live in or because they're paying for a discounted service, it can make it really, really difficult for kids to learn. I'm Mariah Balingit, and I write about young people in schools for The Washington Post. This divide is going to create disparities that are going to last for generations to come.
0: So what is your sense of what percentage of kids K through 12 lack access to either the technology that they need for remote learning or lack access to high-speed internet? Like, is that something that the FCC, the Federal Communications Commission, that they would keep track of? The FCC has not
3: done a great job uh, tracking that, But some of the estimates put the number as high as 17 million K-12 students lack high-speed internet at home. And that means that they're not able to do their homework at home. So this used to be called the homework gap because a lot of teachers require internet to do homework.
0: But now, of course, the homework gap is becoming the all the time gap because these kids are doing their entire education over the computer. Exactly. And I
3: think that's why a lot of advocates and a lot of students personally feel this great sense of urgency in getting this problem solved because
4: the digital divide has been with us for quite some time.
3: I spoke to superintendents, for example.
4: I'm Sonia Brickensantelisis, and I live in Baltimore City, Maryland, and I am the chief executive officer for Baltimore City Public Schools.
3: Who said we're basically locking kids out of the classroom if we're not providing them with high-speed internet and devices.
4: I think the digital divide in this particular context of schooling really does boil down to access.
3: And that's also a real shift in thinking. You know, in this country, we generally view the internet sort of as a luxury or a bonus. Uh, We all personally pay for it. A lot of us pay a lot of money for it. If you can't afford it, you know, tough
0: luck. Even though it's clear that, like, the Internet is no longer actually a luxury, like it is a thing that you need to do the basic parts of your life. And particularly during the
3: pandemic, because during the pandemic, a lot of states and local governments actually mandated people to stay home. And even if they didn't, they urged them to stay home, which means that they have to conduct all their business on the Internet. They have to look for jobs on the Internet. They have to apply for unemployment on the Internet. They have to do their doctor's appointments on the Internet. So these are all of the things that the government was urging individuals to do, but we still need to go that extra mile and ensure that people actually have high speed Internet at home.
4: In a lot of ways, young people are off the grid. I mean, is, is literally how I've described it.
0: So then when it comes to this problem of kids who lack access to the technology and, and the Internet that they need to do school, what are some of the solutions that, that school districts are coming up with to try to get them what they need?
1: So
3: school districts are doing a lot of really interesting and creative things.
4: What we're seeing is a number of school districts really either raising money, redeploying funds to be able to put to this effort, particularly from a device.
3: A lot of school districts are relying on philanthropy from local organizations. They're negotiating with Comcast sometimes to get discounts for families or to ensure that families that might have issues with credit can still get online. Some school districts are installing their own towers to broadcast like Wi-Fi or something. In San Antonio, for example, there is a proposal between the city and the school district to actually put some kind of transponder or something on top of traffic lights Hmm. in order to give school-aged children access to the internet. But I think the issue is, and what a lot of people talk about, is these solutions are patchwork, and they often rely on the charitability of local philanthropies or local companies. Mm -hmm. In one district I talked to, for example, the, the women had more affluent families sponsor poor families. And pay their internet bills.
0: Which is both a very nice idea, but also feels very fraught with problems of like rich kids who are paying for poor kids and like how does that make poor kids feel? Well, and not only that, it's not necessarily scalable and it's not sustainable.
4: This requires a cross sector response.
3: These are not commitments that extend decades
0: into the future, they're often just short term fixes. And so is there any like larger effort to try to get longer term and more comprehensive fixes and not just these kind of piecemeal solutions in random districts or counties where they've been able to find short term options? So, yeah, one of the big criticisms
3: of this is that it's not scalable. And when I spoke to the Baltimore City schools CEO, for example, she basically said you know, kids get internet based on whether or not their superintendents have good negotiating skills or are persuasive and charismatic. Mm. But yeah, I mean, there are people that are trying to look to the FCC, for example, and to Congress to try and fix this problem. There's a new line of thinking among a lot of school superintendents, which is that the internet is a utility. It's like electricity or water. You essentially need it and the government should support efforts to expand it. So one example of this is, The FCC, which is led by uh, Ajit Pai, a Trump appointee, they have said they actually have a program to support and subsidize the payment for Internet in schools and libraries. But they've essentially said, we don't think that this money can be used off campus. Hmm. It can only be used on campus. And that's obviously a problem during the pandemic when schools and libraries are closed. So there's members of Congress that have pushed back and said, no, we believe this program can be used for off-campus Internet. It's sort of an in the weeds things that could make a really, really big difference. The other piece of this is that there are members of Congress and education advocates that are urging Congress to put more money into this particular program to expand it. So that way schools have another way to help pay for Internet. But as we saw, the coronavirus relief package failed and the actions taken by the president did not address this at all.
0: So do you think these challenges that are posed from this time where all these kids are trying to learn from home, that it's going to have permanent changes on the kinds of expectations that that we have for what kids need to be able to learn and what they need at home? And do you think that it's going to change the systems in place to help kids have those things in the long term? So I
3: think... Absolutely, this is going to have an indelible effect on the way we educate kids and education generally because school systems were forced to make changes that typically take a decade or more overnight, essentially. So we saw school districts like Los Angeles Unified buy Chromebooks for hundreds of thousands of students. A lot of districts did things like huge Chromebook purchases, and then they negotiated contracts with their local service providers. But I think that there is a new shift and a new emphasis being placed on the importance of internet to learn. Part of the reason is because we're still in the midst of the pandemic. And during the school year, it's gonna be so important because even if you're in a school district, for example, that's going back full time. A lot of those school districts are preparing to have to pull back and shut down again. A lot of those school districts are doing hybrid systems where maybe the kids are going to school two or three days a week, but then they're learning at home the rest of the time. So the internet has never, ever been more important for learning, not just for for younger students, but also for college students than it is now. And I think even when the pandemic subsides, that will remain the case. And hopefully some of these larger investments that school districts have made will continue.
0: Mariah Bellingent is an education reporter for The Post.
2: I'm Antoine. I am 18 years old. Um, I go to Easton Senior High School. And some things about myself, you know.
1: Antoine Gibson is a rising high school senior. He's a very gregarious 18-year-old. He loves hanging with his friends. He loves school.
2: I like to party, and I'm a very anti-social person. Well, like, I mean, it's so like I'm a social person. Like I like talking to my friends. Like everywhere I go, like if I see someone, I talk to them. You know.
1: And his foster father described him to me as kind of the mayor of D.C.
2: Doesn't matter where we go, he knows people. He knows everybody in this city, everywhere. Doesn't matter what neighborhood. <laughs> He's uh, charismatic and charming and mm-hmm. outgoing and uh, a good guy. Mm-hmm.
1: Antoine also has intellectual disabilities, and he receives special education services at school. So he's often in very small classrooms with other kids with special education needs. Often these classes only have six or seven kids in them. And one day a few months ago in July, his father reached out to me, his foster dad, Kevin, and suggested that I write a story focused on the needs of children like Antoine and what's at stake for them if they don't return to school soon. My name is Perry Stein, and I cover D.C. education for The Washington Post. This remote learning has been really hard for him. He's at school where he learns a lot of independent skills, skills that he'll need for an independent life.
2: You know, they do very practical things like cooking class. You know, there's a kitchen in that classroom. Um, They go shopping and learn how to shop for themselves. Um, They work with money. You know, they're going to have an independent living class, but they're just not going to be able to do the things that they were doing and that they, they can do when they're together. I mean, you can't really, you can't really do independent living skills over a computer.
1: He just got a cosmetology internship at a local hair salon in D.C., and he was excited to do that, but that obviously got canceled.
2: You know, the year in which Antoine was expecting to get an opportunity to explore a little in the job world and find something that would be of interest to him. And, you know, I don't know how that's going to happen now.
1: And his foster father told me he can tell he's losing some of his skills because he requires a little more help to even break down multi-syllabic words when he's reading.
2: I think Antoine's a perfect example of, um, of the loss that kids are incurring from remote learning, uh, being the only way you know, school is now being delivered. Uh, he, he needs to be around other people. He needs to be working with other, other people to uh, to thrive and and to learn, he's very tech savvy, you know, and he's adept. He can man, he can navigate the technology. But sitting alone in our living room on a computer, you know, just is a a pale shadow of uh, the school experience for Antoine. And he says it all the time, right? Mm -hmm. Like pretty much every day. Mm -hmm. And it's not always easy to to want to get on the computer and do. I've been
4: saying I miss school for a
2: while now.
0: So when it comes to this question of how students are supposed to be served when school is being done virtually, how does that question apply to special education? What are the particular challenges that are posed by trying to do special education virtually?
1: Well, it's really, really complicated. And obviously we switched overnight to remote learning in this country. So it's not like these schools had a lot of you know, headway to prepare. There are kids with cerebral palsy or other needs who get their physical therapy in school. Kids with speech delays who get their speech therapists at school, occupational therapy, you name it. A lot of these kids are receiving special services in their school buildings each day. Virtually, these can be really hard to deliver online. But you see a lot of schools trying to do telehealth. So there are kids who receive their physical therapy online. But I've also heard from some parents, you know, especially of young kids that say that just doesn't work for my three-year-old to be getting their physical therapy online. Um, so a lot of them are just kind of bagging it and skipping. And what are the parts of that process that parents are saying
0: doesn't work? Like, What are the parts about how the kinds of learning and attention and and help that that these kids are receiving in person, how that just doesn't? pan out when it happens over a screen.
1: I've talked to the mother of a dyslexic child who said, it's really hard for my child to learn and focus online in virtual classrooms. That can be particularly hard depending. I mean, it's hard for all kids, but particularly kids with special needs like ADHD, dyslexia. It can be hard to just look at a screen. Um, you know, I talked to parents, um, a child named Ethan in this story. Um, he's actually a young adult, but is still in the school system. You know, his parents said his walk has become more wobbly since school shut down because he's not getting his in person physical therapy. I mean, these are oftentimes developmental milestones that kids can be missing. And are some of these
0: parents of kids with special needs pushing for school to reopen, at least for them and their kids, like recognizing both the particular challenges for them to do their learning online, but also the fact that these are kids who already need extra help? And, and if they don't get that, then they could be put further behind for many years to come.
1: So there has been talk about that school leaders have said they want to get special education kids in the buildings first when they can, or kids, other high priority kids, kids that may not be able to work from home for whatever reason or don't have access to the tools they need to succeed in remote learning. And... Parents themselves, Antoine's foster father told me that, you know, he thinks the conversation should be a little different when we're discussing back to school. He thinks for special education, we can think about it a little differently. He's not suggesting that we go back until it's safe. But he said his child, Antoine, he's not in mainstream classes. He's in classes with special education children. These are smaller learning environments, and Antoine typically doesn't have more than six or seven kids in a class. So when we talk about social distancing, it seems more feasible for them to be able to be in a classroom while social distancing. With that said, a lot of teachers have told me that these kids often require the most kind of physical contact. Maybe they have emotional issues and require a lot of hugs, um, require a lot of hand-holding. There are kids with medical devices that they need help inserting and things like that. And so, so what are the
0: stakes for these kids when it comes to the prospects of, of them having to continue to do remote learning for a long time and not being able to get back into the classroom anytime soon?
2: Kids are losing a lot. More than, more than any other part of our society, kids have taken the brunt of the impact of the pandemic, even though they are the least at risk. And that's not the way our society normally works. Normally, we put the kids first. And we make the compromises to make sure that they get what they need to have a good life. And we're not doing that this time. And it's, uh, it's really quite shocking.
1: I think it's important to remember as we're talking about school reopening that the stakes are high for everyone. They are high for every child who's not in school. But they are particularly high for special education kids because oftentimes we're not talking about um, will they be able to complete their calculus homework, or are they going to get these academic skills, a lot of times they're going to school to fulfill um, the skills that they need for an independent life, to be able to hold a job after high school, or to be able to live on their own, or be able to communicate with their peers and their family and their, their communities, or to be able to be physically independent. And for a lot of them, remote learning just hasn't worked, and the stakes are high.
0: Perry Stein covers education for The Post. On Monday, Antoine had his very last first day of school, and it happened online. Kevin wrote to us about the experience. He said, quote, It was generally positive and uneventful once you get past the heartbreaking fact that today was the first day of Antoine's senior year in high school, and he spent it staring at a small screen in our kitchen. This is not what school should look like.
5: And now one more thing. My go-to answers for how I've been feeling in the past few months have generally been things like pretty good, all things considered, or, you know, things could be worse, um, or I'm fine. But after talking with mental health experts, I started to realize that all those platitudes I was using really weren't accurate. Like a lot of us, I wasn't really addressing or labeling how I was feeling at all. Instead, I found myself falling into a behavioral pattern known as toxic positivity. My name is Allison Chu, and I'm a reporter covering wellness for The Post. So especially during something as stressful as a pandemic, trying to maintain a positive outlook can be a good way to cope. But when you start forcing positivity in situations where it's just not natural, that's when it becomes toxic. The toxicity stems from undervaluing negative emotional experiences and overvaluing positive ones. And so you start to judge yourself and maybe even others for feeling pain, sadness, or fear. And so as a result of that, you start to think the only way you can deal with a bad situation is by putting a positive spin on it. But that's just not realistic, and having this kind of attitude doesn't let you deal with all the things that are actually causing your distress. You end up exacerbating the problems and delaying healing. Experts say there are a few good ways to avoid falling into the trap of toxic positivity. You can start by using appropriate language to describe your feelings, instead of shoving them down into an, I'm fine. You can practice mindfulness techniques and you can make sure to validate the emotions of people you're trying to support instead of brushing them off with an, I'm sure things will be okay, or look on the bright side. Ultimately, what experts say needs to happen is people need to find a more balanced approach to how we understand, how we feel, and what we do about it. Of course, it's okay to have a positive outlook when things aren't going well, but it's also okay not to be okay.
0: Allison Chu writes about wellness for The Post. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. We've heard from a lot of listeners who loved our recent story on a teacher and a class trying to get through their AP exams in the middle of a pandemic— Listener Vidi Vincenza tweeted, quote, Legit, these kids are making me cry. They are such good kids dealing with so much. We're glad that the story affected you as much as it affected us. If there's a Post Report story that stuck with you, tweet about it and use the hashtag #PostReports. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post.